Hello and welcome to episode two of The Bookcase, a podcast brought to you by Nosley Library Service. Uh, I'm Jamie and today we'll be talking to Carolyn uh, Jess Cook, who writes as CJ Cook, uh, who's an acclaimed novelist, academic and award-winning poet. Uh, born in Belfast, she is currently lecturer in creative writing at the University of Glasgow, uh, where she researches creative writing interventions for mental health. Uh, CJ's novel, I Know My Name, was uh, her first psychological drama, which is currently being developed into a TV adaptation. And she also has a new novel out in September entitled The Lighthouse Witches. And during this episode, we'll also have Word of the Week from Emma, and then we'll have our quick fire quiz from Stu. Uh, so hi, Car- hi, CJ, and welcome to our podcast. Uh, firstly, can you tell us how you got into writing and what are your approaches to it? Oh, okay. Hi, everyone. Um, nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, so I've, I've been writing my whole life. So um, <laughs> I think I got into writing at a, at a very young age when I was about seven, I, I think at least seven, if not younger. Um, you know, I, I think it was, uh, for me, it was a way of processing the world around me. I didn't have a very nice home life. Um, I grew up in the midst of the troubles in a very impoverished and violent household. Um, and so I think um, I just remember, you know, writing in an old diary that, you know, the, the ones that have the week on two pages kind of thing. Um, that's all I had. Didn't have a nice paper chase notebook or anything like that. I just had a, <laughs> a, a book that I dug out of somewhere and started to write. So it was a very natural inclination and I still actually have that diary and I remember sort of writing down some of the things that were going on. But I think I think also subconsciously I turned to fiction um, pretty, pretty early on and I wrote sort of, you know, seven little mini novels or books between the ages of seven and 14. Again, you know, I think it was just even though it wasn't... Um, capturing exactly what was going on there was there was just processing and I've always done that um hence why I still research creative writing methodologies for for trauma and for mental health um so but I I continued writing through my teens and I was more of a poet I didn't actually ever sort of think at that point that I would become a novelist mm-hmm. um and I I was an academic as well because I went on to do a PhD and I I wrote academic books and poetry and then something sort of switched or clicked into place, I, I guess, when I had my second child, um, when I was about 30, um, I wrote it, I decided I wanted to write a novel. So, or, or at least, sorry, one of the ideas that I had for a poem was not a poem. It was, it was a story and it was a long story. So it was a novel. And that's essentially how I became a novelist. Wow. Really interesting. Um, and I know you mentioned there about um, doing research into mental health and creative writing. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And has that sort of shaped some of your writing for your fiction novels? I haven't written with any sort of agenda. Um, well, I, you know, I, I, it's it's something that I've been conscious of uh, for a while, but not always because it it was something that I turned to instinctively. And then I started hearing about other writers who would do the same thing. And I became interested in sort of boundary between writing about the self and, and writing through the self, but also writing in, in a fictional, fictional capacity. And I found that a lot of the kind of work around, um, oh, sorry about that, the work around uh, 
writing for mental health is essentially in terms of expressive writing or journaling, which is a different genre altogether. Mm. Um, and I was interested in using fictional frameworks um, to process trauma and to, to benefit your mental health. And that seemed to be an area that wasn't so tapped. It wasn't so explored, but at least not in a research sense, but I could see that a lot of um, writers were doing this anyway. Um, and they, they called what they wrote art. They saw what they produced as art. It wasn't just the actual act of writing that was therapeutic. And I really hesitate to use that term, but I'll use mm. it out of sheer laziness. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it seemed that there is, there is much more to it. The, 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 the act of creating essentially was what was beneficial. It was also a way of, of changing your identity in a way as a, a person in, in the midst of trauma or a survivor of trauma and someone who creates and that that distinction between those two identities is huge. It's, it's about raising self-esteem. It's about detaching from a situation that can feel insurmountable, um, especially generational trauma, which you know was was my case. My mm. father was abused. His father was maybe abused. I don't know, but it was just generations of abuse, and I was I was suffering from that, so or experiencing that. So yeah, I I am interested in in finding um, you know different ways of approaching creative writing um, and and thinking about it in in those terms. Uh, th there's also this kind of train of thought I find in that field, um, whereby there's an assumption that you know if you go to a group of people who are experiencing mental health difficulties, they won't be able to be taught creative writing. This is the scientific thought that, you know, writing can't be taught or, you know, which I really reject. I really reject mm -hmm. that you can. And, and this, the, hence, this seems to be, in, in the research I've done, this was the kind of thought process behind, you know, using expressive writing because you can get people to write journalistically or in a sort of uh, diary sort of way, but actually, um, you know, you, you can sit down people and, and over a course of time, show them how to write poetry and, and it be, you know, it can be a meaningful experience and they can get better. And I guess that's where your, um, your lecturer side of you comes in as well, because you are teaching people the art of creative writing, no? Yes, yes. We, <laughs> we predominantly teach postgraduates. And the, the reason I make that distinction between undergraduates is because usually we have sort of older people who have had careers for a long time and they've maybe taken a sabbatical um, to pursue their dreams. So they're very, very, very dedicated and passionate and they're also on a sort of advanced level of writing. So um, so that is really um, exciting. It, it, it My teaching feeds into my practice. Mm, I can see that kind of circular teaching into practice, practice into teaching and how the two really, really are intrinsically linked. It's fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah re really interesting stuff. So um, I've, I said earlier that um, the, the, I, your book, I Know My Name, uh, there's a TV adaptation in the works. Um, and is that sort of like that adaptation process, is that sort of influencing your approach to writing? Um. Not so far, um, you know, it, it's it's quite removed from an author's um, 
kind of remit because it, the the rights get sold or they get mm -hmm. it get it gets optioned, um, and it's it's usual for the producers to attach a TV writer or a screenwriter to that project rather than the novelist, um, simply because it's how the TV and film world works. They mm -hmm. prefer to have people attached to have credits for writing for TV. Um, so that's that's been the, the experience so far. Not to say I won't ever write a screenplay, um, but yeah, it's um, it's you know a sort of business transaction. I might have a different mm -hmm. perspective once um, once something gets made. It must be quite exciting though to have a book um, recognised as something that could be really good for TV and and kind of how that makes you feel that your work's being recognised in that way. Oh, it's it's terrific. Um, you know, it's 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 really great. I think, but I'm a little bit further down the road. My first, my my second novel was was adapted, or sorry, it was um, optioned in 2014. Um, and I've had, it's it's now been optioned, that fell through, it's been optioned by someone else. Um, and I've had several other books optioned. So I'm very well aware <laughs> that it's, ex it's exciting, but you know, just because it's optioned doesn't always mean it's gonna be made. Um, okay. it, it's very common that it doesn't happen. It, it gets okay. optioned. It still has, there's still a lot of hoops to get through. I know my name got right through to the sort of this final meeting at ITV and mm. then the person at ITV who was really excited about it left. Okay. For that meeting. So it didn't get, it didn't get through. Um, and that's, that's how it happens. That's, that's the sort of, you know, there's, even when you have experiences of success as a writer, there are still a lot of knockbacks and rejections to face. Mm. That's tough. Well, <laughs> yes, it is. But, yeah. uh, you know, it, that, that's it. It's, it's not as simple as you sort of get published and up you set. It's, uh, it's, it's actually harder to, to, to continue being published than it is to mm -hmm. publish in the first place. I mean, have you, do you have sort of, we asked Oliver Harris this in the last uh, episode uh, about what, what kind of actors or actresses would you visualise for some of your characters in your, in your books? For which book? Um, for your TV adaptations, I know my name. Um, I, I haven't really thought about it. Um, I, I don't. I don't know. I think um, because Lachlan, the male character in that novel, is Scottish. Um, I sort of thought of Sam Hewen, but he's quite. Mm. Um, he's also quite beefcake. <laughs> so maybe, <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe someone less. Uh, muscular I don't know but um yeah I I, I had some thoughts also about D David Tennant even though that's a completely different uh character altogether or a different sort of look for the character but um funnily enough David Tennant also was sort of in my mind when I was writing um The Nesting the character of Tom I thought of of him for that book um I love that actress who oh what is her name she was in uh a Netflix series recently I think it's Pieces of Her um Vanessa mm. she's blonde oh my gosh I can't remember her name but she is phenomenal I just I think she's an incredible actress I'll, I'll maybe look her up and see if I can find out who she is but um <laughs> so she she for me was was the ideal character or ideal actress to play Aurelia in that book uh for the nesting because the nesting was optioned as well 
So mm. yeah, that, that was oh. my Vanessa Kirby. That's it. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, she played Princess Margaret in The Crown, didn't she, as well? well she, she's got a brilliant range. I, I just yeah. I think actually she is the ticket when it comes to new talent on screen. I think she's absolutely one of the ones to watch. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, remember seeing, I remember seeing her in the first series of The Crown. And it was the first time, I think, I think it's the first time I saw her as well. Just brilliant. She was such a great actress. She's um, um also um sort of before our, we come to recording this and our discussions beforehand we sort of talked about like how your work's been translated into uh, nearly over 20 languages um and do you have much involvement in that and i spoke so we, one of the things we were thinking about was does the, that how does the translation convey in a different language I and how i, I have no <laughs> idea because i don't speak german or spanish or mm. um i i only just you know hope for the best um <laughs> you know again that's all done by my agent um she mm. sells the rights and you know uh it's it's not like she waves a magic wand i think it's just sort of look at the draw if someone um different markets different publishers decide that this book is a right is a fit for their mm. market then it's it's great and they have their own translators i mean i've had a few queries from the different translators of the books just to check different terminologies which you know I, I I kind of worry when I don't get an email um but I know I got um a copy of the Portuguese translation of my first novel and they used footnotes <laughs> you know, to um actually it was the Brazilian Portuguese translation so they used little footnotes to explain to Brazilian readers what the heck the <laughs> troubles were. Uh, so they had to provide a historical context in a footnote. <laughs> because That's fantastic. Brazilian readers are going to be like, what the hell is this? So um, yeah, so I thought that was that was fair enough. You know, you, you gotta you gotta make sure the reader has a bit of an insight into what you're mm. talking about. So mm. I have no idea. And I suppose it it shows as well their limitations of they can't convey it accurately enough in one word in their language. So they're just trying to explain it a bit more. And almost it does you credit because they're appreciating the context is different, but they're wanting to explain that rather than just making something up and hoping for the best. They're sort of digging a little bit deeper to, um, yeah, to show that they're respecting your work and the time that you've put into it is how I see that anyway. Exactly. And um, also, do you have any advice for any aspiring writers um, or any common mistakes to maybe avoid or um, anyone who wants to get involved in creative writing and that kind? Um, I would say do not equate your worth with your success, because that is um, that's the path to severe sadness and disappointment and anguish um i think this uh writing and being published and being an author is an extremely rocky road despite i think the way it's portrayed that you know you Mm. have people write this this novel on their commute or their lunch break and then it becomes this mega hit the industry loves debuts it loves there's this weird celebration and you know massive interest in the, the new thing 
Um, and you, if you look closely enough, you'll see that there's a lot of massive debut successes that you never hear of again, because as I said, mm. it's extremely hard to continue being published. You know, it, all that, you're only as good as your last book. It's a very, very tough game. And so it really takes a lot of persistence and a lot of graft, a lot of business sense, actually, as well as talent. Mm. So this is something I've had to learn. I started off as a writer, but I had to really get my head around the business side of it um, and understand it's not my job to to sell the books or to, you know, to do I, I do publicity, etc. But I've got to understand how to navigate the relationships with my publicist, with my publisher, with my agent. You know, these are all people that I have to understand what they do um, and how to, to work with them and be part of that collaborative process. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's to continue being published and to create a writing career takes grit and it takes persistence. <laughs> there are a lot of knockbacks, both in the way and you know along the way and and you'll you'll maybe see an author who is having a winning streak but you don't know what their losing streak looked like so you've got to make sure that you know you don't underestimate that um not I don't I I hate saying all this because it sounds like I'm painting a really you know grim picture but it's just it's the honest truth Mm. um I wouldn't and I but like having a baby you can't really describe to someone what it's like to have a baby because it's something that you only understand when you've done it and it's the same with with writing that I think all of that what I say only makes sense if if you're on if you've you know sort of done it so I, I think the main thing is just to write what you love write what you love write from the heart write purely write be true to yourself all that kind of um you know it has to be play and if it's not play it's a toil and I I, I just don't think it's worth it um if, if it becomes too much of a of a chore because if, if if it is then it's all the kind of the work that it takes and the effort that it takes to to really get published and to you know to get your books out there is is just too much so you've got to love it you've got to really be passionate and I, I fundamentally suggest re- reading, read, 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 read. Stephen King to this day reads two books a week. <laughs> and I think, you know, it, it takes that. You got to know, you got to know what's being published. If you can't list, if you can't tell me three books that are really hot in the charts right now, then there's a problem. You're not reading enough and you're not participating enough in the sort of the atmosphere and the, the environment and the, the climate that you're writing into, you've got to know your readers. You've got to know what your readers are reading and what they're enjoying. So that's that's my advice. In Solid, good advice, really good advice. Yeah, brilliant. I think it's a great note to end the interview on as well. So thank you, CJ Cook, mm. for uh, to coming along to talk to us. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. And now it's over to Emma for our word of the week. And what have you got for us this week, Emma? Okay, so this week I have a word which uh, you might be familiar with. Uh, it's the word doolally. 
have you ever referred to yourself or someone else as being a bit doolally? Um, you know, you might say, oh, he's gone a bit doolally. Well, we tend to use that word when perhaps, I don't know, we're feeling the strain of being cooped up for a while, desperate to get away somewhere. Maybe even the lockdowns of the last year have sent us a bit doolally. Um, or, you know, just your best friend who's always a little bit mad, crackers or bonkers, however you want to describe it. Well, there's a history behind this word that you might not expect. Uh, it has its roots in a town northeast of Bombay in India. At the height of the British Empire, the British Army established a military sanatorium in Deolali. I've deliberately pronounced that wrong, um, but uh, it doubled as a transit camp where soldiers who had served their time would await their boat home at the end of their duty tour. The boats only left between November and March, the end result being that some soldiers could have waited almost six months under the scorching Indian sun and the deluges of the monsoon season. Others contracted certain diseases and were confined to the hospital on site. Unsurprisingly, the boredom and restlessness of these long months ensured that behaviour soon began to deteriorate. So the men were described as going doolally tap. Doolally being the Englishman's pronunciation of the town, Deolali, again pronounced wrong, um, but they, they pronounced it as doolally because it's spelt D-E-O-L-A-L-I. So I can see where that comes in. And, and tap is actually an Urdu word for malarial fever. So the men had camp fever or cabin fever, however you want to call it. So the soldiers would have said to one another, oh, that chap over there, he's gone a bit doolally tap. But the tap was a bit cumbersome. It was soon dropped and just the word doodally remained and it gradually slipped over from army slang into mainstream vocabulary where it has stayed for a long time at the friendlier, lighthearted end of synonyms for madness ever since. Some of them, you know, I started with by saying crackers or bonkers, that kind of thing. So there we are. Next time you describe somebody as being a bit doodally, you know where it comes from, India. Oh, very interesting. And as you said about cabin fever there, I mean, is that, does that come from the same place or is that something completely different entirely? Because <laughs> I know I always, you always associate it with pirate ships, don't you? And pirates going a bit crazy, you know, being at sea for so long. Yeah, I would say it's probably got similar roots. I'm, I haven't got, I didn't, didn't delve that far into it, really. I just, um, the, what I read about the word said it was camp fever but I suppose I've only ever used cabin fever rather than camp fever. Um, I guess I use them interchangeably. Um, but yeah, you know, by, by being stuck in, I think the same principle, isn't it really? Cabin fever, you're stuck in, um, nowhere to go, nothing to do. And the days just roll into one another um, and you go a bit mad. So I think it's sort of a similar, uh, a similar experience, but literally the word comes from that name, the town that they were in doolally except that it isn't doolally wonderful stuff we'll have more words of the week from emma on our next episode thanks very much um so now we're going to go and head over to Stu for the quick fire quiz and what have you got for us Stu? okay thanks jamie and uh, hello cj so uh... hi Hello. So, uh, CJ, your challenge is to answer as many quick-fire general knowledge questions as possible in a minute. So, uh, you're free to pass any that you don't know or ask me to repeat anything at any time. So, um, 
Actually, if you get uh, more than two correct answers, it'll put you put you on top of our early leaderboard. So are you feeling confident? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So, okay. So we'll start your minute now. Who wrote the novels Gone Girl and Sharp Objects? Gillian Flynn. Correct. What colour is the G in the Google logo? Orange. Incorrect. From what race <laughs> is the Japanese spirit Saki made? Oh, I don't know. Pass. Incorrect. So how many of Henry VIII's wives were called Catherine? Two. That's incorrect. Uh, what was the old name for a Snickers bar before it was changed in 1990? Marathon. That is correct. What is the name of the surrealist artist who's known for painting melting clocks? Oh, Salvador Dali. That is correct. Zagreb is the capital city of which country? Croatia. That is correct again. Who illustrated Roald Dahl's books? Quentin Blake. That's correct. What name is given to a triangle whose sides are all equal in length? I saw three. It's actually an equilateral triangle. But good score, that's fantastic. So wow, that gives you an impressive score of five. So straight to the top of the leaderboard there. Uh, the question Yay. is, you, got... <laughs> you, must, you must be feeling so proud. You must be feeling amazing right now. Yeah. Well, the color of the G in the Google logo is actually blue. Oh. Uh, and uh, the Japanese spirit sake is made from rice. And uh, you were close oh, on this yeah. one, but Henry VIII actually had three wives called Catherine. Oh, okay. he must have had a thing for Catherine's. But yeah, well done. <laughs> Excellent. Woohoo. Okay, Jamie, back to you. So um, that's it for us uh, this week. Uh, you can keep up to date with what's happening in Nosley Library Service by searching for us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at Nosley Lib and visiting our website www.yourlibrary.nosley.gov.uk where you will also find out how to access our BorrowBox e-books and e-audiobooks services. Join us next week for another episode of the Bookcase podcast with Nosley Library Service.